It's Monday, November 6th, 2017, and you're listening to WDET's Election Preview Special. I'm Pat Batchelor. And I'm Jerome Vaughn. Tomorrow is Election Day, and so we thought we'd provide one more opportunity for you to prepare for your time in the voting booth. Over the past several months, you've had the opportunity to hear from Detroit's mayoral candidates. Perhaps you got to watch the sole mayoral debate and maybe a handful of commercials. We thought we'd give you a little more information. There are also races for city council, city clerk, and a couple of questions about marijuana on tomorrow's ballot. Over the next hour, we'll take a deeper look at Detroit's election, giving you a chance to hear from the candidates, including answers to questions you may not have heard elsewhere. Detroiters will select the city's leadership for the next four years. We're here to provide you some more information toward that end. All of that is coming up, but first, this news. Welcome to WDET's election preview special. I'm Pat Batchelor. And I'm Jerome Vaughn. Tomorrow, Detroit holds its first mayoral election since it emerged from the nation's largest ever municipal bankruptcy. It remains a city facing high rates of crime, poverty, and unemployment. Both candidates, State Senator Coleman Young II and incumbent Mayor Mike Duggan, vow to address those problems. WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter examines Duggan's bid for re-election, an effort the mayor says is taking Detroit from near insolvency to a city he maintains offers opportunities for everyone. On the August night of Detroit's mayoral primary, first-term incumbent Mike Duggan negotiates a crowd of well-wishers, still absorbing his roughly 40-point victory over his nearest rival, State Senator Coleman Young II. You know, I, I, I just sat there watching the numbers come in and we couldn't believe them. The, the numbers that I saw tonight look like we carried every single precinct, so it looks like it's one Detroit. The phrase one Detroit carries a particular meaning this election cycle. It's a counterpoint to a widespread narrative that the city is becoming two Detroits, one featuring new investment and more upscale residents, the other encompassing inner-city neighborhoods mired in poverty. But Duggan says he's creating a foundation for reinvigorating neighborhoods, something he says led to endorsements from groups like the Black Slate, a political organization that traditionally backs African-American candidates. We spent the last four years just getting the street lights on and the buses running and the grass cut. Now we're going to build a Detroit where there's opportunity for everyone. And the, the partnerships we're forming with people like the Black Slate and the like is really coming together well. And I know we can land businesses. Now we just have to get our residents to, to get the skills to take those jobs and we'll, we'll be going the right direction. It's a path that impresses Detroiter Penny Baylor. She says she's worked with Duggan on the Detroit Promise Scholarship Initiative, which offers high school graduates from across the city free in-state college tuition. Baylor says many previous Detroit politicians talked about improving the city, but she says Duggan is making it happen. I call him Get It Done Mike. That seems to be his persona. Some people say he's my way or the highway, and maybe he have to be to do something this monumental. 139 square miles is gigantic. And the mayor, he has to do everything. You have to do transportation. You have to do police. You have to do fire. You have to do water. You have to do everything that it takes to make people believe that they can make it. That includes growing Detroit's tax base by making it a place where people want to live in part by tearing down the thousands of blighted, abandoned buildings dotting its landscape. Detroiter Jackie Harden says Duggan's demolition effort is creating opportunities in her neighborhood near Dexter and Grand River. Currently where I live, on that particular street, there's only three occupied homes. Everything else has been tore down. But of course, by me being the equal opportunities, I'm trying to buy up the street. <laughs> <laughs> Since they're tearing down everything, I might as well try to be a land grabber. They don't make it easy because, especially with the Detroit Land Bank, they want to sell everything in bundles. The Land Bank and Detroit's demolition program came under fire when federal officials briefly froze funding for it amid questions about the skyrocketing price of tearing down buildings after Duggan took office. Critics contend the mayor was directing demolition work to only certain contractors. Duggan counters that it was hard to find companies ready to quickly demolish the vast number of buildings he sought to take down. Duggan adds that it's an issue that never comes up at the house parties and community meetings he says he attends each week. Nobody asked me about the land bank investigation. They asked me, when's the abandoned house next to my house coming down? 
And I'm really pleased that the feds just released another $88 million in demolition money. There's no question that I tried to solve the demolition problem too much too fast. The feds said you need to restructure your controls. We did that in the summer of 2016, and now we're moving full speed ahead. So is Duggan's re-election campaign, with the mayor popping up at numerous events highlighting companies bringing new jobs to the city or redeveloping buildings like this one, the Plaza Apartments, in Detroit's Midtown area. It's been a pretty remarkable few hours. I just came from the site of the old Southwestern High School on a plan expansion hiring 200 more people uh, right here in Detroit. And as I'm going from there over here, I get a phone call and Moody's credit rating agency called to say they were giving the city of Detroit a credit rating upgrade based on last year's financial performance. Duggan went further at a groundbreaking for a new park in the Fitzgerald neighborhood near Livernois and McNichols. He told the crowd that rather than being two separate Detroits, what helped revitalize the city's downtown and midtown sections will work in the neighborhoods as well. Could you take the strategy that was so successful in midtown of everybody pulling together uh, with a single vision, and could we bring back neighborhoods? And this is the kind of neighborhood that we see a lot of in Detroit. 600 families who stayed, along with 115 vacant houses and 200 vacant lots. And we're going to prove that we can rebuild this in a way that people are going to be very proud that they stayed. But after the groundbreaking, Fitzgerald resident Don Future eyed the departing crowd with suspicion. He says the neighborhood rebirth Duggan describes has yet to make it here. You see, it's just still a bunch of burnt-up houses around here now, a bunch of uncut grass. And matter of fact, my uncle just got killed last Monday right down here on this corner. And I didn't see the news of anybody around here for that, you know. Go down there now, the crime tape is still down there last Monday. You got to eat with the people, sleep with the people. You got to struggle with the people. And so I see a politician doing that, you know, it's like a pile of tricks to me, man. When the spotlight and the camera comes around, you see them, but when, when the camera's gone, it seems like they gone. Duggan launched his first bid for the mayor's seat four years ago by saying every Detroit neighborhood has a future, though he adds that not all of them have the same future. I'm Quinn Kleinfelter, WDET News. Mike Duggan has spent much of his campaign appearing at events showcasing what he calls new investment in Detroit's workforce and new development in the city's neighborhoods. Duggan recently sat down with WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter at a park in the Woodbridge neighborhood to outline his vision for Detroit's future and what drove the mayor to seek the top job in city government in the first place. Of course, four years ago, I, I had a job uh, with people I loved at the Detroit Medical Center, but uh, I was watching uh, a city where the street lights were out, where the police wouldn't show up, where the parks were closed and the grass was overgrown all summer, buses didn't run, and uh, you know, it was a city I was born in, a city I loved, and I felt like uh, maybe I could contribute. And uh, you know, I feel like people in Detroit gave me a chance. We've assembled a team that's the top talent in Detroit and the top talent across America blended together. And I feel like uh, we have things going the right direction. We're going to work really hard and see if we keep it going that way. How do you think the city's progress is at this point? I think we've made great progress on city services. And if you talk to people, the ambulances are showing up uh, promptly. The police cars are showing up promptly. The buses are running on time. We've added 1,500 bus trips, 65,000 streetlights and in all of the parks are open and being maintained again. So that was the expectation for the first term. Now the second term is can we extend the development that's been so successful in downtown and midtown and New Center and Corktown and extend that to neighborhoods across the city? And can we make sure that the thousands of jobs that we have coming back to the city, uh, that uh, Detroiters are getting the opportunity to get the training, get the skills, uh, get the education, so that people in the city uh, will fill the jobs that are coming into the city. When you had ran the first time, you had said that you wanted to be judged by the population growth, too, and whether people were here or leaving. How do you think that stands at the moment? Well, because of the U.S. Census Bureau, we know exactly where it stands. So we were losing 20,000 people a year for the 10 years before I got elected. Uh, we lost 3,000 people in 2016, the lowest population drop in more than 60 years. And DTE gives me monthly updates on residential utility hookups, and I believe 2017 will be the year 
that the uh, six-decade decline uh, turns around. And I'm anxious to see the census uh, numbers for this year, but I believe we're growing again. When you were doing the primary uh, on the podium, the theme was one Detroit, right? That sounds like it's a reaction to the narrative you always hear of the two Detroits, that there's investment downtown, but the neighborhoods aren't getting it. Is that why it's one Detroit? You know, if my campaign theme in 2013 was every neighborhood has a future. Uh, and one Detroit is building on that. And what uh, we mean by that is this. We have areas of this city that are well off and areas of the city that are blighted. We've got uh, people who are wealthy and we've got people uh, who are struggling. In my view, one Detroit means we have a city where everybody has an opportunity to succeed. And if you are born into a poor neighborhood, you have a chance through the Detroit promise that guarantees uh, college. Uh, for for graduates of Detroit high schools. You have the opportunity for the Detroit at Work program to train to be a carpenter or a forklift operator or a, uh, a medical assistant or any range of those kinds of jobs. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do. Build a city where no matter where you start out, there's an opportunity for you to succeed, and, and ultimately we bring every neighborhood back. After 60 years of decline, every neighborhood is not coming back at the same time, but the rebirth is spreading uh, across the city, and that's our goal. Talk to your opponent, Mr. Young. Um, you know, people going after an incumbent always have to attack anyway. But some of it is a little more personal than you would think. I mean, one, one of the first things that he'll say is stuff's not getting out in the neighborhood because you just don't care and you just don't worry about those people. What's your reaction to those comments? I mean, it's the kind of stuff uh, that you expect a guy to say as running for office. Anything, I mean... Don't care. I truly don't care what he has to say. Really? I truly don't care. Why not? Because I ran for office and got elected after doing 250 house parties. For the last four years, I have gone once a week into somebody's living room, basement, backyard on warm weather days, uh, and uh, have stayed connected to the community. I know how the community feels, and this city has been enormously supportive of me. They showed that in August, and uh, I'm going to continue to talk about creating opportunities and, and spreading the growth. And, you know, guy running against me is going to say what he's going to say. That's not really what I focus on. There were two issues that he and other people had brought up. I'd like to at least get you to, to react. Uh, the one is in regards to the land bank, which you have talked about saying that um, you, you thought mistakes were made because you went too fast. He's got an ad out there that compares you to former Mayor Kilpatrick. He rigged bids, and you had admitted to doing it. Have you ever admitted to rigging a bid? Uh, the, the whole ad is complete fiction. Uh, and... Again, I go back to the meetings I'm having in the community. Nobody asked me about the land bank investigation. They asked me, when's the abandoned house next to my house coming down? And I'm really pleased that the feds just released another $88 million in demolition money. We're taking down 80 to 100 houses a week. We'll take down another 6,000 between now and the spring of 2019. And I'm even more proud of the fact that 3,000 of those vacant houses got renovated and moved families in. Because when you you knock down the burned-out house, the solid brick house that was vacant next door, somebody will move into and fix up. So uh, uh, there's no question that I tried to solve the demolition problem too much too fast. Uh, The Fed said you need to restructure your uh, controls. We did that in the summer of 2016, and now we're moving full speed ahead. In terms of the neighborhoods, how quick do you think stuff is going to get out there? I mean, you're seeing it right here in the Woodbridge neighborhood. Talk to anybody here about how the Woodbridge neighborhood has come back uh, in the last four years, and it's been remarkable. I just came from LaSalle Gardens, uh, where people were showing me all the houses that were vacant four years ago. I did a house party in LaSalle Gardens when I was running in 2013. It was pitch black. You couldn't find the house because all the lights were out. And now all of those vacant houses are being filled in. So it's a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood, uh, effort. And uh, the rebirth is spreading, but we got a long way to go. Mike Duggan is seeking a second term as mayor of Detroit. He spoke with WDET's Queen Kleinfelter. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, you'll hear about Detroit's other mayoral candidate, State Senator Coleman Young II. You're listening to an election preview special on 1019 WDET. You're listening to an election preview special here on 1019 WDET. I'm Jerome Vaughn. Glad you could join us. And I'm Pat Batchelor. Detroit City Hall is named in honor of one of the town's most famous political figures, the late Mayor Coleman Young. 
It's one of many signs of Young's lasting influence as the first black mayor of a majority African-American city. It's a legacy that's on display along the campaign trail where Young's son, Coleman Young II, is vying for the mayor's seat. As WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter reports, Young argues that in the wake of Detroit's rebirth following bankruptcy, the race to become mayor is truly about race. Yeah. At a recent candidate forum on the Wayne State University campus, State Senator and Detroit mayoral hopeful Coleman Young II works the crowd of potential voters. He says here in the Midtown area, things are going well. But head towards the thriving downtown business district, and Young says you are not welcome if you are black. It's overall plan on purpose just gentrify this city. And that's what I think is well. You can call it ethnic cleansing, you can call it urban renewal, you can call it Negro removal, which is what I call it. Young says Detroit's current trajectory is reversing the progress blacks have made in the city. He argues that Detroit is at a tipping point, with the city's vibrant downtown development advancing while its impoverished neighborhoods, where most residents live, continue to decay. I think this is the last hurrah. If we don't have leadership that's going to do right now, you're going to have poor people, poor black folks who are going to be pushed out of this town. I don't think we're ever going to get this city back for African Americans. Right now, we are the poorest city in America, and we are the most violent city in America. That's not happenstance, those two things exist. Young and African-American stopped short of saying the city is becoming what some call two Detroits, one affluent, the other poverty-ridden, because incumbent Duggan yeah. is the first white mayor in decades to lead the mostly black population. But Young stops just short of saying that. No, I think we just need a mayor that cares. I mean, now, now listen, obviously I'm an African-American man, I want to be mayor. So I'm not, I'm not going to torpedo myself here, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, you know I want those two things to be one and the same. We need a mayor that cares. And we don't have it. Look, the mayor even said that the two Detroits don't exist. It's fictitious. They are totally out of touch and disconnected with the reality of the citizens and the pain and the suffering. You have people who are making decisions. Am I going to pay my light bill or am I going to pay my auto insurance? These are things that people are going through. Restoring the lighting along Detroit's streets is something Duggan touts as a core achievement of his first term as mayor. But in a quiet side room at the Wayne State Candidate Forum, longtime Detroiter Louis Novak says he agrees with Young that when he sees the city lit up, certain areas seem to glow brighter than others. We've been hearing for uh, decades through various uh, mayoral administrations how whatever was going to happen downtown was going to move up Woodward, move out into the neighborhoods, trickle down to the neighborhoods, but that just doesn't seem to be happening. A brand new stadium and a, uh, a train to nowhere doesn't really seem to, to fit the bill. That train, the new Q-Line light rail system, took years to build and runs only through downtown and midtown Detroit. At the candidate forum, Young says the Q-Line is of little use to most Detroiters who need transportation beyond buses to get from their neighborhoods to work or shop. I think that these things are hurting people on a real level and we could do better. And we should be doing better. And if we just had leadership that gave a damn, we would be doing better. You think that's the case? Oh, I totally think, oh, I totally think that's the case. The, listen, he's not trying to start a city earned income tax credit. That's what we're trying to do. He's not trying to start an office of opportunity to coordinate poverty fighting programs. That's what I want to do. Yet racial issues are never far from Coleman Young II's campaign. We have a mayor who believes the best time to talk about race is never, and the best place is nowhere. And he's having policies that are detrimentally impacting African-Americans on a wide scale. Young, on the other hand, consistently brings up issues of what he calls racial injustice, both on the stump and on the floor of the state legislature. Only weeks ago, during a session in the state Senate, Young made an impassioned defense of athletes' right to protest during the national anthem and tied it to the recent death of Detroit teenager Demond Grimes, who lost control of an ATV after being tasered by a state police officer. My question to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, as a black man, when can I protest? When can I speak out? I have seen young men such as Demond Grimes in my city who was killed for riding an ATV. And for what? A civil infraction? You killed him. You murdered him. We are 
angry. We are incensed. Young's campaign is also low on cash compared to the massive war chest compiled by Duggan. So in one of his first campaign advertisements, Young used his scant resources to target two traditionally hot-button issues for Detroiters. The ad links a federal investigation into Duggan's use of demolition funds to the corruption that landed former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick in prison. And, again, the announcer frames Young's argument in terms of race. Kwame Kilpatrick went to prison for rigging city contracts. So what's the difference between him and Mike Duggan, who also admitted to rigging city contracts? Why does Duggan get a pass while Kwame Kilpatrick goes to jail for 28 years? It's as simple as black and white. To be clear, Duggan has not admitted to rigging any contracts. And some Detroit voters say the issues affecting the city today are not just black and white. On a stretch of Detroit's Woodward Avenue, Uber driver John Anthony says he knows the legacy of Young II's famous mayoral father. But Anthony, who is black, says the fact that Young II has the same racial heritage is not enough to earn his vote. You're in because the majority of the uh, population is African-American. You're African-American. What is that going to bring African-Americans and everyone else? Anthony says he'd rather hear about Young's track record as a public official, especially whether he's been successful at delivering the kind of job opportunities the city needs. People talk about things uh, going on downtown and, and nothing in the neighborhood and whatnot, but it has to start somewhere. Anthony says Duggan seems to be slowly pushing investment into the neighborhoods, even as he acknowledges Young's contention that many Detroiters feel left out of the city's renaissance. He says it will not really become apparent which issues are truly resonating with Detroiters until voters head to the polls on November 7th. I'm Quinn Kleinfelter, WDET News. Coleman Young has worked in the state legislature since 2007. Now he's making a bid for the mayor's office once held by his father. Young tells WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter it's a critical time for Detroiters to re-examine the city's leadership. Well, the reason why I'm running now is because I think this is the last hurrah. I think that if we don't have leadership that's going to do right now, I think that one, you're going to have poor people, poor black folks who are going to be pushed out of this town. I don't think we're ever going to get this city back for African Americans. Right now, we are the poorest city in America, and we are the most violent city in America. That's not happenstance. Those two things exist. And if we don't have leadership that fundamentally cares about the people, this is not going to change. And that's why I'm running for mayor now. I'm running for mayor for that person that's gone from job to job to job to job to job and can't get work. I'm running for mayor for that person that's had their license suspended or who's gone to jail because they've asked them about their auto insurance and they can't afford it. I think the fact that 48% of the people are living in poverty today I think that these things are hurting people on a real level, and we could do better, and we should be doing better. And if we just had leadership that gave a damn, we would be doing better. Oh, I totally think. Oh, I totally think that's the case. Listen, he's not trying to start a city earned income tax credit. That's what we're trying to do. He's not trying to start an office of opportunity to coordinate poverty fighting programs. That's what I want to do. He's not trying to treat violence like a virus and make sure that we find the root causes of these problems so we can stop them you know, before they turn into crimes and hurt people. He's not trying to do any of these types of things. You mentioned earlier that you think African-Americans in particular are being pushed out of downtown. So you see this as a racial issue? Oh, absolutely. I will totally see this as a racial issue. The fact that they are literally talking about getting rid of the low-income housing tax credit which is responsible for so many low-income seniors being able to live in these apartment buildings. That is on the verge of being of expiring. That you have people in senior buildings who are told they have a year left or they have to leave. And that's what's going on in this city every day. I just truly believe that we have a mayor who believes the best time to talk about race is never, and the best place is nowhere. And he's having policies that are detrimentally impacting African Americans on a wide scale. I don't know why we don't have um, pay equity for African-Americans. Well, I think black people make 80 cents on a dollar their white counterpart. There's no reason why we shouldn't have those proposals in the city. He's just not doing it. It's a majority African-American population in Detroit. 
Do you think that means that somebody who's black would best serve the interests of the city if they were mayor? Oh, in terms of an African-American mayor relating to the constituency? But no, I think we just need a mayor that cares. I mean, now, now listen, obviously I'm an African-American man and I want to be mayor. I, so I mean, you're, 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 yeah, you know what I'm saying? You know? So I'm not, I'm not going to torpedo myself here, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, you know, I want those two things to be one and the same. But um, I just think we need a mayor that cares. And we don't have it. Look, he, the mayor even said that the two Detroits don't exist. It, it, it's fictitious. It's not real. I mean, these people are delusional, and they've lost their damn mind, and they, don't, and they are totally out of touch and disconnected with the reality of the citizens and the pain and the suffering. You have people who are making decisions, am I going to pay my light bill or am I going to pay my auto insurance? It's wrong and it's shameful. Talk about some of the problems in the neighborhoods. How would you, as mayor, improve the neighborhoods? I want to take all the money that we have. The home funds, the HOPE 6 funds. Uh, home funds are affordable housing. HOPE 6 funds are for distressed affordable housing. The state revolving fund grants for you know, water infrastructure. The community development block grant funds. I want to encourage and work with our pension board to invest pension funds in the city, as well as uh, new market tax credits. I want to take all that and I want to invest it in the neighborhoods. I want to make sure that when we build mass transit, we build it in the neighborhoods, or it goes through the neighborhoods at least. I also want to bring back something called African Town, monetizing black history, all the things that black people have accomplished and achieved in Detroit. For us not to be able to take advantage of that, New Orleans has monetized their music culture. There is no reason why we can't monetize our history, why we can't monetize Motown. They got Chaldean Town, they got Mesky Town, they got Cork Town, they got Greek Town, they got Bangley Town. We want to do the same thing for African Town. What about downtown? You think you can work with the people bringing the investment in? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I definitely think we get along with that. Look, we want. Look, I'm not against down. I'm not against investing downtown. I just wanted to go to eight mile. I want to go to seven mile. I want to go to six mile. You know what I mean? That's all. I just want to go to neighborhoods. Teach these kids these skilled trades in the schools. Now you got some programs, you got like Better Minute Outreach, you got STAPE, you know what I'm saying, that does that, that trains Detroiters and provides that. But we need to expand that model throughout the city, and I think that's something that we should be doing. I mean, I'm not saying the mayor should take over the schools, because, no, no, I don't think the mayor should take over the schools. I, listen, I, the people voted for what they have now. I think that whenever we talk about schools, we're always arguing about who's gonna control it, who's gonna control the contracts rather than having a conversation about what we're going to do to make sure that we improve the performance of these kids. And I think what we need to do is work with the state to ensure that we have expanded learning time and longer school days and longer school years. I also think we need to have uh, wraparound services in these schools, you know, whether it be job training, whether it be health care, whether it be baby college. These are some of the things that we need to do in order to make sure that we can have a better community through our school system. And I want to work with the schools in order to do that. Obviously, your father left a big mark on Detroit. Is there anything that you would do different than, than he did back in the day? Oh, I'm not going to question. I'm not going to question anything that the Honorable Mayor Coleman Young has done. I mean, if it was not for the Honorable Mayor Coleman Young done, nobody would be entertaining me, both literally and, you know, politically. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm not going to question anything that he's done. I thank God for him. I think that he has left a legacy and a path that we all should follow. And I think that if we followed the principles and virtues of Coleman Young, we would not be in the position that we're in now in the city. Coleman Young II is a Michigan State Senator and a candidate for mayor of Detroit. The city council election in Detroit's District 2 is the only race where an incumbent council member lost to his challengers in the August primary. Now, the city's largest group of voters will decide the district's future. WDET's Eli Newman has more. It's late in the evening at the campaign office of Roy McAllister Jr., city council candidate for District 2. A few volunteers are still trickling into the room when his campaign manager begins speaking. We'll open the meeting up in prayer. Let's look to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for our candidate, Roy McAllister. The room is covered wall-to-wall -wall with decorations, inspirational quotes, a poster of President Barack Obama, and large printed maps of District 2. The district makes up a good portion of Northwest Detroit. It's home to some of the city's wealthier neighborhoods, such as Palmer Woods and the University District, where the median household income is more than $85,000. 
and there's a whole section of neighborhoods like Bagley, Winship, and College Park that branch off of Outer Drive. In the August primary, District 2 had the city's biggest turnout of voters. And in that election, Roy McAllister came out on top, ahead of former state representative Virgil Smith and incumbent council member George Cushingberry. Still, that doesn't stop McAllister from playing it safe. It's like I tell everybody I'm running this race just like I'm in third place. You know, I'm trying to get to everywhere. I don't have time to get sick, and I don't have time to be flustered. Not until November the 8th. November the 8th, you may not even see me no more. <laughs> but until that time, I will be out here. McAllister knows what it's like to be a runner-up. The former federal investigator has run for Detroit City Council in every election since 2009 and has yet to win a seat at the table. June Mack, an active community member living in Winship, says she's voted for McAllister every time. He's one of us. He's here for us. Everybody. He's a retired police officer. We need somebody with structure. Max says she agrees with McAllister's core campaign goals, improve the quality of life for residents in District 2, grow development, and reduce crime, blight, and foreclosures. She says whether it's protecting the district's senior citizens or encouraging home ownership, she knows McAllister will emphasize safety in the neighborhoods. We really need animal control right now because there are a lot of stray dogs running around in the streets. My male lady was attacked by a pit bull two weeks ago. That's, that's awful, you know, and she, she's still working. Michelle Broughton, a school teacher and treasurer for the McAllister campaign, feels the same way about her candidate's values. She says the district needs a change because incumbent council member George Cushingberry doesn't connect with the community. He didn't show up to the block clubs. He didn't respond to us. When he responded, he said it was more important to work on the budget to balance the budget. It's also important to find out what is wrong in your district that you represent that your constituents are having an issue with. Cushingberry says that's something he'll work on if elected for another term. He failed to win a spot on the November ballot during the primary, but he's running as a write-in candidate. Cushingberry says seniors feel out of the loop because he uses the internet more than he uses mailers. I have been very frugal in the way that I've approached delivering my services to the people in terms of having constituent relationships, and I, I feel that I've missed uh, an opportunity to better communicate by using direct mail. Cushingberry points to the city's current successes as proof of his political know-how. As for current issues in this election, Cushingberry maintains a positive stance on something that both of his challengers and many residents oppose. Two ballot proposals that would loosen the regulations of Detroit's medical marijuana industry. With the crisis that we have on blight, it doesn't make sense for us to add to it by picking and choosing how people get to have their pharmacies. So I'm for both of the proposals. As for the write-in campaign, Cushingberry doesn't seem too worried. Don't forget, we, we, we wrote in Mayor Duggan when they did something similar to him four years ago. The reality is the amount of money Cushingberry has in this race pales in comparison to Duggan's mayoral bid. Of the district candidates' three campaign committees, Cushingberry's has raised the least, with the fewest number of gifts. Two union donations make up roughly a third of his contributions. Conversely, Roy McAllister's committee has raised the most, with gifts from 130 different backers, many of whom contributed $100 or less. And then there's Virgil Smith. Smith is at his barber, getting a clean cut for an upcoming campaign event. Well, you know, you're the first interview that I've done, so. Since, since, for this how whole long? situation, you would be the first. Smith's referring to the elephant in the room surrounding him and his campaign. While serving as a state senator, Smith was arrested for felonious assault, domestic violence, and other crimes when he was accused of shooting at his ex-wife's car in 2015. Smith entered a plea bargain with Wayne County, agreeing to plead guilty to one of the lesser charges and serve 10 months in jail. He also agreed not to hold public office during his probation. Smith voluntarily resigned from office at the state capitol. But during Smith's sentencing, the Wayne County Circuit Court stripped parts of the deal that would have barred him from holding public office, claiming it was unconstitutional to do so. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy has since appealed the decision, moving to renegotiate the plea deal and stop Smith from running for office. The state's lower courts have ruled that Smith can run for Detroit City Council, and the ongoing legal drama has now reached the Michigan Supreme Court, which is delaying a ruling until after the election. Smith says he tries to be truthful about the situation when talking to voters. I think I've been able to show them who, you know, my true personality and who I really am, and not this monster that has been, uh, that, that I've been made out to be in the media, so to speak, uh, for those that did not know me. 
Smith says he does that by staying active on the campaign trail. His direct cell phone number is printed on the flyers he hands out. And he says he has plans for Detroit's biggest problems, like introducing plans to lower car and home insurance, a familiar issue to him from his time in Lansing. He says he's also working on a strategy to encourage home ownership. So when everybody speaks on these tax incentives for like ent entities in downtown and midtown, well, we have one for homeowners, but it needs to be expanded. As he looks forward, Smith says he doesn't see his political future as another chapter of criminality in Detroit's upper echelons. He sees hope. You know, you got to have an uplifting story out here, and people are looking to somebody to, to show them how they can rebound, and there is redemption. So I look at it as that narrative. Regardless of the reason, Smith is attracting voters. He was just 350 votes shy of beating out Roy McAllister in the August primary. And with fewer names on the November ballot and more voters expected to show up at the polls, Detroit's District 2 election could still go to any one of the three candidates. For WDET News, I'm Eli Newman. Detroit City Council District 6 is one of the most diverse in the city. About 40% of the population is Hispanic, another 40% is African American, and the remaining 20% is either white or another race. The district encompasses diverse neighborhoods from parts of downtown Detroit to Del Rey. As WDET's Brianna Tinsley reports, that diversity creates a multitude of issues for city council candidates to address with residents. City Council District 6 is the biggest in the city in terms of population and faces many different issues. But there is one issue most residents agree needs to be addressed. I live in a senior complex and one of my concerns is the drug dealers that are in my building. They make me feel unsafe. Stray dogs. I, I live around the corner from my job and I can't I can't walk to work. Too scary out there. That was Mary Stedman and Veronica Mitchell, two seniors who live in southwest Detroit. Safety is their main concern. City Council candidate Tyrone Carter can attest to residents worrying about safety. He says it's the biggest issue for the voters he's spoken with. A lot of my seniors will tell you, um, the moment the sun goes down, we're going in the house. Tyrone Carter was born and raised in Detroit. He's the former vice president of the Wayne County chapter of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, otherwise known as AFSCME. Carter is also a retired lieutenant from the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. He says he believes expanding the city's green light video security project could help residents feel safer. You will never have enough police officers. Let's just be clear with that. But I think technology has given us the opportunity to kind of supplement that in areas. Carter says incentives that are given to green light businesses can be used to help fund an expansion of the live video program to put more cameras in neighborhoods and in high-risk areas. He also says there are grants the city can apply for to help buy equipment. But some residents in District 6 are concerned with issues other than safety like Patricia Tolbert, who lives near the Marathon plant in far southwest Detroit. While sitting in the Patton Recreation Center, she says pollution is a major problem. We always have an ongoing issue with Marathon. Out around 12 o'clock, you can just see a big flame and black smoke. And this is like noontime. Tolbert says she feels the company often dismisses health concerns from the surrounding community. Incumbent Councilmember Raquel Castaneda-Lopez says she's working on city ordinances that would improve the accountability of industries in neighborhoods, such as Marathon. We've been working on a law for four years around air quality, and that just now is coming to the table for a vote. Um, there's other laws that we're working on that would help with a lot of the pollution as well um, to create green buffer space. Castaneda Lopez is the current city council member for the District 6. She was also born and raised in the community. She is a member of the council's Public Health and Safety Committee and has more than 10 years of experience in social work. The pollution ordinances proposed by Castaneda Lopez would increase monitoring of carbon emissions and create a public health fund to be used in neighborhoods that are heavily impacted by pollution. Castaneda Lopez says she needs four more years in office to guide more ordinances through to completion. And change takes a long time. So whereas we've made a lot of progress the last four years, uh, we really need more time to be able to move forward some of the laws that we've been working on. She touts her ability to secure $10 million for job training for Detroit through negotiations for community benefits, 
from the new Gordie Howe Bridge project, as well as starting the first and only mobile office to assist residents throughout the district. Castaneda Lopez says it's important to make sure all District 6 residents are heard. Tyrone Carter agrees. He says the concerns in one district can be vastly different from those elsewhere. The needs in Delray are going to be far different from the needs in Woodbridge. So you have to make yourself familiar with the needs of those areas. One thing both candidates believe is every neighborhood in District 6 needs individual attention. Residents will cast their votes for Detroit City Council on November 7th. I'm Brianna Tinsley, WDET News. We'll take one more quick break, and then we'll take a look at the two proposals dealing with marijuana on the Detroit ballot. You're listening to an election preview special here on 1019 WDET. Welcome back. This is WDET's election preview special. I'm Pat Batchelor. Voters have two decisions to make on Tuesday regarding sales of medical marijuana. One ballot proposal focuses on how sales will be handled. Another determines where sales can take place. The vote comes at the same time some pot dispensaries face uncertainty about remaining open. WDET's Amy Miller has more. Detroit-based medical marijuana shops that aren't permitted under city ordinance are required to close their doors before December 15th. State regulators say owners of shops operating without local approval will not be allowed to apply for a state license without first shutting down. The move is part of Michigan's new regulatory strategy. New state regulations include five different kinds of licenses and provisions for sale of edible products. Alex Leonowitz is an attorney with the Howard & Howard Law Firm specializing in the business of cannabis. He says the application process is somewhat complicated. So it's not a simple application. They're way more in-depth. What does your grow facility look like? What's your security plan? What are you doing with your chemicals, your pesticides? How are you ensuring that your employees aren't taking the product outside? What are you doing back with your community involvement? The laundry list goes on and on. With nearly a quarter of a million card-holding medical marijuana patients, Michigan is in the top three states for medical marijuana permits. Chris Walsh is founding editor of Marijuana Business Daily. He says lack of regulations has hurt Michigan's industry and its credibility. Walsh says a legal framework and enforcement will help sort things out. It'll probably be messy for a little bit. I think the key on the business side is to remember that a regulated environment is good if done right. And some of these things might sound heavy-handed. Maybe they are. But you've also got to understand that there's still this huge stigma around the industry and people are probably going to overreact with regulations at first. Walsh has reviewed Michigan's proposed regulations. He says most reflect what other states have found to be best practices. While the Michigan Medical Marijuana Licensing Board has been working on regulations and enforcement, the group Citizens for Sensible Cannabis Reform wants some influence on how the industry is managed in Detroit. It collected enough signatures to put two proposals on the Detroit ballot. Proposal A defines how medical marijuana distributors will be required to handle sales. It allows for longer hours of operation from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Current Detroit city law does not allow dispensaries within 1,000 feet of certain other businesses, such as child care centers, public housing, and liquor stores. Proposal A reduces the 1,000-foot requirement to include only schools and libraries, and it adds a 500-foot limit between churches and other dispensaries. James Tate represents District 1 on the Detroit City Council. He's worked on the regulation of dispensaries in Detroit. Tate says he opposes Proposal A because it doesn't require enough distance between dispensaries and daycare centers or liquor stores. For me, it's not about being anti-marijuana. It's about how do we want our communities to look? How do we want them to feel as a resident? That's the biggest thing for me. And I want us to eventually potentially opt into the state's operation where we end up taxing these entities. But I still don't want us to be in a situation where they're at every corner, four or five on the block like they were before. For all intents and purposes, Proposal A also puts the city in line with the new state regulations. It's something called opt-in, and it defines how dispensaries can use signage, including prohibiting images of marijuana leaves and green crosses on signs. 
Proposal B addresses where the businesses can be located. Current law limits dispensaries and grow operations to areas zoned for manufacturing and industrial use and in limited business corridors. Kimberly James is an attorney with the City of Detroit. At a recent public meeting, she explained the proposed changes. Proposal B would allow all five of the uses, dispensaries, laboratories, transport businesses, cultivation and processors in M1 through M5, and it would also allow dispensaries, processors, and cultivation facilities in B1 through B4 districts. So it expands the districts where these uses would be allowed. Another significant change in Proposal B limits public input. Butch Hollowell is the Corporation Counsel for the City of Detroit. He says Prop B eliminates a two-step public process that applicants are currently required to go through. Both of those hearings today, the public has a right to be there and to weigh in and say, we really like this facility or we really don't like this facility for whatever reason. It also expands the areas or the territory within the city that they can be. Hollowell says the proposals take away much of the city's regulatory power. Organizers of the two proposals say they're forcing the city to take into account the needs of stakeholders such as dispensary owners and growers. Jonathan Barlow is the group's spokesperson. The city never engaged the primary stakeholders in this industry. They claimed they did before the ordinance was written, but that opportunity was never taken up by the city to really engage the true industry stakeholders. And so ultimately, we believe that we're replacing an underground market that has existed for a very long time. We're creating safe atmospheres. Marijuana Business Daily tracks the development of medical and recreational marijuana industries across the country. Editor Chris Walsh says new regulations at the state level combined with the proposals in Detroit, where nearly all of the dispensaries are located, could stymie growth of the industry and inconvenience patients for a time. But he says taking thoughtful steps is important. You do find in other states getting the necessary approvals can significantly delay the process to get started in this industry. And in some cases, it has derailed for a while the entire program. There should be an eye out on making sure that this can be streamlined and that it's not going to take an inordinate amount of time to get the license they need to operate. Walsh says regardless of which requirements the state and the city of Detroit start out with, ultimately the industry will look different. He says whether medical marijuana is approved through citizen referendum or by an act of the legislature, the trend among states is expansion of programs. Even states that have had very restrictive programs where you only have five medical conditions allowed and you only allow three dispensaries in the entire state, in almost every case, lawmakers and regulators go back and they expand the number of dispensaries that are allowed and the number of grows. They expand the medical conditions list. To me, that's the best trend you can look at to show that if these are well-regulated, the communities and the states actually embrace them. All marijuana dispensaries in Michigan that are currently not licensed under municipal laws are required to close by December 15th. State regulators plan to start issuing licenses after the first of the year. In the meantime, Detroit voters will decide on Tuesday whether the city rules for operation and location of dispensaries should be modified. I'm Amy Miller, WDET News. Elections for Detroit Mayor, City Council, Police Commission and City Clerk take place on Tuesday. WDET has been asking voters how Detroit is doing and what elected officials can do to make it better. Residents have had all kinds of responses. What we've heard frequently is that progress in the neighborhoods lags behind downtown and midtown. WDET's Laura Herbert has more. In recent years, there's been a lot of improvement in Detroit. But not everyone in the city is seeing economic development where they live. Yorkshire Woods resident Damon Damphy is disappointed at the lack of attention his neighborhood receives. Well, I know that the, the, the jewel of every major city is the downtown, you know, downtown area. And while that looks really, really nice, sometimes you can feel like you're being forgotten about in the neighborhoods. Curtis Green says he sees problems in the neighborhoods that he doesn't see downtown. Detroit is doing great downtown. Uh, other places, another story. The tale of two cities is, is, is a fact. It's not something people just made up to try to make their campaign seem more in tune with the grassroots or something. It's, it's a serious situation. I mean, 100, 100 plus thousand water shutoffs, you know, a 40% poverty rate. I mean, it's a serious situation. 
But for some residents, the situation is more nuanced. Yorkshire Woods resident Laverne Homan-Williams believes that certain areas outside of downtown are getting attention. But she says her neighborhood is not one of them. When you look around the city, you see some of the initiatives that are going on in East English Village, Palmer Woods, Palmer Park. Of course, there's a ton of money that goes into um, New Center, the Cultural Center, and rightfully so. But there are a lot of forgotten neighborhoods like Yorkshire Woods. Detroiter Leah Willis says the divide is not just financial. It's based on race. I'm seeing two different versions. I'm seeing this idea of the new Detroit, which is more Anglo. And then I'm seeing also members of Detroit, community members who are, have a bit broader awareness of the city of Detroit. The concept of the new Detroit as being this now white, acceptable Detroit, to me, only starts that conversation or the, the, the mudslide of gentrification, which to me is concerning. Gabrielle Hawkins has a potential solution. She would like to see elected officials doing a better job of reaching out to people in the neighborhoods. They should actually go to the neighborhood, come in the inner cities, all of the areas that, you know, that are marked off as bad because of crime and all of that stuff. I think they should actually go to those areas and say, well, how could I help you? Or what do you want to see done? Or how, and even if you want to help, you know, how can you help us help you? Robert Yarmatter grew up near Gratiot and Six Mile. He says he won't consider the city fully recovered until more improvements reach that area. I think it might happen in my lifetime. You're seeing it slowly happen. But where I grew up, when that's back and thriving and think good things are happening out there in the neighborhoods, then Detroit's back. While none of the candidates on the ballot for this election are campaigning against the neighborhoods, Detroit voters like these are watching to see who will prove that in office. I'm Laura Herberg, WDET News. You've been listening to WDET's election preview special. Remember, tomorrow is election day. Polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. Join us for live coverage of election results from Detroit and the rest of the region tomorrow night on WDET and WDET.org. You can hear all of these stories and find more voting information at WDET.org slash elections. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Don't forget to get out and vote. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University.